All right. Let's go ahead and uh, get started. And uh, we'll do so with a word of prayer. I'm looking at the audio guy. Am, am I good? Okay. <laughs> when I see you stop back there by the audio booth, I'm thinking he's giving me a signal. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can look again at the book of Deuteronomy and how we pray that your spirit would guide us and cause us to be more in your image for having spent time with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first two sections are from your outline last week that we didn't get to. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them. I just want to notice again that the support of the Levites were coupled with mercy to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And I think that's interesting because the Levites were very important in Israel's history. God chose the Levites instead of the firstborn. They were symbolic in that sense. And they were the priests, uh, the family of the priests, Aaron, coming uh, in the midst of the Levites, the Levites being the broader tribe. But notice uh, verse 18 or chapter 18, the Levites, all the tribe of Levi, notice how it says here, uh, shall have no portion nor inheritance with Israel. The priests, the Levites, all the tribes of, uh, all the tribe of Levi. They shall eat the offerings of the Lord made by fire. So that's their portion. So you, well, how do they get food? Well, the rest of the other tribes bring offerings. And some of those offerings, uh, Levi um, gets to eat. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance. So that was a picture again, a symbol, right? Um, more fully in the New Testament where, you know, we're all priests now and the Lord is our inheritance, all of us. And we don't need this picture among us of the Levites as, as Israel had for all that time. And this shall be the priests due from the people and those who offer sacrifice, whether it's a bull or sheep, they shall give to the priest. Notice the shoulder, the cheek. Remember they do the wave offering with some of that and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain and your new wine and your oil. Notice the first fruits. Um, the priests were honored. Levites were honored. The first of the fleece of your tribe you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. Now, don't get caught up on that forever. I haven't commented a lot on that. But you see that a lot in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, forever, forever, forever. The word in Hebrew is olam. Um, it doesn't mean forever, literally. It means of the age, age enduring. Uh, it can mean forever. Um, but it doesn't have to mean that, you know, we don't, we think of forever, forever. Um, but it just means, you know, as long as there's a, as long as there's a tribe system in place, Levi will be, you could understand it that way. Uh, but the whole system inherently is, uh, symbolic, typical and incomplete. Something has to put away this. The book of Hebrews goes into great detail on that. The same priest ministers every year, can't do enough. It, it never takes away sins. It has to be repeated. So the whole system cries out for some great work to put it aside. So right away, you know, forever doesn't mean forever and ever and ever. Uh, we know the Israelites believed in, in life after death. Uh, obviously, there wouldn't be a symbolic ministry in life after death in the, in the eternal state and things like that. So obviously, it can't mean that. But it means, again, as long as there is this system, as long as you are in this stage of God's revelation, you could even say it that way, under Abraham and his sons, there were no Levites, right? Uh, this came about um, because God was furthering his program and so forth. Uh, but then uh, just pick it up again in verse 6. If a Levite comes from any of your gates where he dwells among Israel, comes uh, with all the desire of his mind to the place, because so, the Levites could go anywhere, right? Because they didn't have... Uh, a particular uh, plot of land like the other tribes did. And, and as if wherever they went, they were supposed to work. They were teachers. They were, uh, in a sense, doctors. Uh, they were uh, counselors. And, and they were the priests or, or the uh, ones that served in the temple. Uh, then he may serve in the name of the Lord, uh, his God, as all his brethren, the Levites do, who stand before the Lord. So they stand before the Lord. They teach and that's how they get their portions. They work like everyone else, but they work in the law. You see that in Deuteronomy 33.10. They, the Levites, shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. That's part of um, uh, when Moses gives the, um, the song there at the end. This is about Levi. Levi shall teach Jacob. They shall teach the law. They shall put incense before you. So they, they do the work of the worship and the whole burnt, uh, sacrifice on the altar. So that would be the priesthood. So they're working like everyone else, but they're not shepherds. And they're not uh, farmers, um, but they are working. 
uh, and, and being that intercessory um, people before the whole nation of Israel. You, all, you see also them performing duties like this, Deuteronomy 24, 8. Uh, Take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do all according to the priest. Then the Levites shall teach you, just as I commanded you. Remember that whole system where they had to look at the hair and see if it's infected and that. So they would go to the Levites for that. So the Levites had to do that work um, as well. Um, uh, it, uh, one little side note, I don't know if you uh, are aware of this, but I was thinking about this when we were over the Christmas break. So um, Elizabeth and Mary are relatives, right? Did you ever think about how that can be? Mary is from the tribe of Judah. You're not supposed to marry outside of your tribe. You know, they're, they're supposed to, the Judah people are supposed to marry within Judah and Simeon within Simeon. And Elizabeth, we know, is the wife of Zacharias the priest. And he comes all, I mean, he had his genealogy in place. He was from the tribe of Levi. Um, did you ever wonder that? How could they be cousins? Is, you know, uh, the Bible making a mistake here or something like that? Well, no. Uh, one of the things that uh, the Levites could do was they could marry any tribe. I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, and so because they went anywhere. So Levites had to go to little villages. And you might be the only family of Levites in that little village because they only need one teacher. And so you're there in that village and you have sons and daughters. What are they going to do, marry each other? Uh, so they were allowed to marry. The, the Levites were allowed to intermarry. And uh, um, the way it worked was if a Levite son married the daughter of some other tribe that he was at, then that family would be a Levite family. But if a Levite daughter married uh, the son of some tribe that she's in, then her family is now the tribe of Judah or the tribe of Benjamin or whatever. And so that clearly would have happened in Elizabeth's uh, background um, or in Mary's background, that there would have been a Levite family involved there. So that's why Mary, uh, well, we know Mary was from the tribe of Judah, so it, it had to be on Elizabeth's side, um, that uh, Elizabeth was genetically would have had a mom or a dad in the tribe of Judah, whether it's grandfather or something like that. But then her mother or her grandmother, somebody married um, the Levite man. And so now she's counted in the tribe of Levi. But that's just another little side note with the Levites being all over the place that they were able to do that and they were able to marry uh, anyone. All right. Uh, One of the interesting things that we looked at when we were looking at justice in the state last time um, and I didn't bring this out, but I did a search on the words in Hebrew, stranger, foreigner, widow, fatherless. I even added orphan in, even though uh, fatherless orphan. And it appears 52 times, those words, 52 times in the book of Deuteronomy, which is by far the most in the Bible. The second book is Leviticus with 31 times, any one of those four words. And then the Psalms come in third with 27. You would think, wow, the Psalms, you know, probably would be not, not even close. Uh, Deuteronomy has almost twice as many as the Psalms, and the Psalms are about twice as big of a book as the book of Deuteronomy. But that again shows the, the emphasis on justice in the nation and mercy ministry in the nation, stranger, foreigner, widow, fatherless, 52 times in the book. So we are, we are right to look at this. It's a very important theme in the book of Deuteronomy. Again, Deuteronomy 26, you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given you and your house. Notice, you, the Levite, and the stranger. They're always put like that. When you have finished laying aside the tithe in the third year, the year of your increase, the year of tithing, and given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow. There they are. Uh, In other words, the, the religious duty and work of the Levite is put right next to showing mercy to uh, people who don't have means uh, to produce, even though, uh, again, they couldn't be indigent or, you know, uh, preying upon people. Obviously, there was lawfulness assumed here. Uh, then you shall say to your Lord, Lord, Lord your God, when you do this, after you do this, and then you can eat within your gates and be filled. Notice that they may be filled, not just that they may have barely enough to live on, that they may eat and be filled. All right. And in the Jewish synagogue system, you couldn't start a synagogue until you had 10 families, 10 families, because in 10 families, you have 10 tithes. And that makes the rabbi equal with everyone else, because all you know, he gets a tenth of the 10. So he gets 10 tenths, just like everyone else. He would have been right in the midst of them. And so that's how they cared for that. Um, But you see the um, 
the Levite, the fatherless, the widow, etc. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gate. Uh, since he has no portion, no inheritance with you, take heed to yourself that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. And so God is very uh, uh, serious about this. Uh, Roman numeral 2, justice, judgment, and partiality. We've already seen this in chapter 24 last week that we did look at. You shall not pervert justice to the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as pledge. That was 24.17. And then the reason being, verse 18, you shall remember, you were a slave in Egypt and your Lord redeemed you. Therefore, I command you to do this thing because you know what it's like um, to be um, this way. All right, so then the first thing Moses does after Sinai, the very first thing, again, emphasizing this idea of judgment and justice in society, the first thing Moses does after he comes out of Sinai, as he's recounting it in Deuteronomy 1, is to appoint judges. Notice Deuteronomy 1.16. I'm on your outline now, letter A. Then I commanded your judges at that time. Here are the cases between your brethren. Judge right, righteously between a man, his brother, or the stranger. One judgment, one law. You shall not show partiality. You shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. If it's too hard, bring it to me. And so there's a system of courts. So you, you, know, you go to the higher court if it's too hard. Deuteronomy 16, 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes. They shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. A bribe blinds the eye of the wise, twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live. If Israel didn't do this, in other words, God was going to judge them and inherit the land. Um, and again, it's not, well, do this and you earn it. It's uh, do this to avoid the judgment because the, you, you, I've already given you the land, but if you start living like scoundrels, I'm going to judge you. All right, and then uh, the, one of the curses that was pronounced, cursed is the one who perverts justice, notice, due to the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Again, because that would be the easiest one you could do. Nobody would know, and you could easily take advantage of them and profit off of them, which is what happens even to this day. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality. He administers justice to the fatherless window stranger, gives them food and clothing. Therefore, you shall love the stranger, okay, etc. So um, part of this commandments are about love, right? It's a command to love. Show love this way. Provide for and be generous. And so that takes us to the laws of love, Roman numeral 3. This is an interesting uh, section here in Deuteronomy 22. This is part of that the difficult section, and we're going to look at some of these difficult verses that we've covered a few of them here and there. So Deuteronomy 22, turn there. We're going to spend time now in this section. Verses 1 to 5, I've called taking care of one another's property. So you see the ox, your brother's ox or sheep. You see it going astray. And, and I love this. Uh, you shall not see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You know, that's just such, such, such a, a, a laying bare of the human heart, right? You see something happening with your name. You're like, oh, I don't even want to deal with this right now. And you pretend like you don't see it so that you didn't, you know, not help them when you should have. Uh, it says, you shall certainly, certainly bring them back to your brother. I remember one time I was driving on this road in Salzburg, like outside of the town. And I come around this bend and there's all the sh these sheep on the road. <laughs> I'm like, what? And I, it looked like they were coming over the fence, like they had gotten loose. And I've never seen sheep on this road before. So I was looking for the farmhouse to try to go to to tell the guy that his um, sheep were getting loose. But I, I couldn't find which house it was. There was, so, there was like one house. I went there. No, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I gave up. I felt bad, but I felt like I should tell somebody that these sheep were on the, on the loose. Hopefully that situation was resolved. I don't know how it ended. Um, but, uh, if you, but if you see something like that, you know, you're supposed to help. Um, notice, if your brother is not near you, you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house. All right, well, you know, I'll bring it to my house and take care of it. It shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. Just, you know, think of the decency of that. You know, the kindness of that. Uh, you shall do the same with his donkey, so you shall do with his garment. With anything lost of your brothers, which he has lost, and you have found, you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself 
Um, again, uh, then the brothers, donkey or ox, if you see them falling down, you're supposed to lift them up. Jesus talks about that. You know, you see uh, somebody's uh, ox or, or donkey in a, in a hole in the ground on the Sabbath. You're going to help it out or sheep, um, etc. All right, so um, we see that. Um, verse 5 um, is interesting. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. How about that for um, relevant <laughs> for today? Well, and, and you can understand that. Now, now, again, like we look at stuff like that. Okay, is this ceremonial? Is this moral? Um, clearly, uh, when we see a passage like that, what's the, what's the principle behind it? Um, well, the principle behind it is God made them male and female. And men are supposed to be men and women are supposed to be women. And to confuse that is not right. And I think that, that you know, again, that principle ought to be the case uh, in any society, in any just society. And it doesn't mean that you can't, okay, you know, I don't know, it's cold outside and you don't, you see your wife's shawl and you put it on because you got to go to the car and, oh, wow, if I sinned against God. No. Uh, it's just talking about that you're actually doing that. I think, you know, notice that shall not wear anything that, that okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to dress like a woman from now on. That's what's being forbidden. Or I'm going to dress like a man from now on. Um, I mean, we've watched the old movies and stuff, and it kind of looks similar, right? I mean, they both have robes. Um, but they were different. They really were. And there were some different, uh, distinct differences between men and women. And it was important then, even as it is today. I mean, up until recently, if you looked at a crowd and if a person, like, cut the heads off of every, any, every, you know, everybody in, in sort of a graphic and you looked and you, you'd probably, you know, 90% of the time be able to say, okay, that's a man, that's a woman, just by their dress. We would we'd be able to do that most of the time. And, um, and I think that's true in every society um, because, again, male and female are different. Male and female um, uh, wear different things. And so that's another uh, passage uh, that shows that kind of thing. Here's the passage before we, we saw about animals. And, again, the bird's nest. You take the bird with the mom and the, the young, but I'm just going through it again. So we've already talked about that. But this is, you know, mercy um, on animals and conservation. You know, if you're going to wipe out all the birds in the region, you're... You're, the next generation is going to go hungry. So, you know, you've got to think about that a little bit too, I think. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, talks about muzzling the ox uh, while it treads out the grain. You shall not do that. Um, if an animal is working for you, it ought to be able to eat as it's doing that, it seems to me. Again, just a principle of just, you know, human decency is what we would say. Um, and then verses 13 through 30 is a really neat section that I'm calling the protection of women. Because that's really what it is. If you look at all these verses, what's going on? Because a lot of these verses have to do with practices that were in that world at that time. And so God is not commenting on, oh, this is right or this is wrong. He's regulating and making sure that as Israel conducts itself, it's going to do so in a way where women are not uh, um, being uh, made prey to men. And so verses 13 to 30, and this is really unheard of in the ancient world. You don't see anything like this in the records, you know, and I'm getting this from the commentaries that I look at. You know, I'm not just saying that, that, that there, you know, the commentary, some of the more um, uh, scholarly, modern commentaries, uh, they, they just, this, this section is without parallel. You don't find this in the Egyptian records, in the Hittite records, in the Chaldean records. There, there's no protection for women. In, in their records like that, they, they go back to this time period. We're talking 1500 B.C., you know, the time of Moses. All right. <clears throat> so verses 13 to 19 is a section on where basically a man tries to uh, say there's, that his wife has done something that she hasn't done because he wants to get rid of her. All right. Now, uh, in most nations... At that time, a man wants to get rid of a woman. A woman has no power. She has no standing. Not so in Israel. Not so. Um, notice, if a man takes a wife and goes into her, so they've consummated the marriage, and detests her and conducts her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman, and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. All right, so this was very important. Um, virginity. In that 
world was, was prized, and virginity is almost always, certainly in the Bible, it's exclusively to women. You don't see men being spoken of as virgins, except figuratively, when we were looking at the book of Revelation, where it talks about the 144,000, they are virgins. Uh, that's a figurative picture. Um, but virginity is exclusive to women uh, in the scriptures and in the ancient world, and it's prized in Israel especially because of the messianic promise <clears throat> that we must know the line of the Messiah. Therefore, a woman must be a virgin until she gets married, and there must be a legitimate seed and all of that because uh, that's what God had promised. So it has to be through you know, Abraham, then the tribe of Judah, and then the line of David. And one of the interesting things is um, that the view of the day that they had of reproduction was that a man provides seed, right? And the woman is like the fertile field, and the seed grows in the woman. They didn't understand anything about sperm and egg and DNA or anything like that. Um, and they didn't know um, that what we know today, that each parent supplies exactly half of the DNA, right? Every human being is exactly half of his mom and dad. We know that today. That, that is the only way that um, the zygote and is uh, formed when the sperm and the egg unite and there's conception it's half from the mom, half from the dad every time. That's the way it works. They didn't understand that. They didn't know that. And they didn't know um, how long sperm lives in the, the woman's body, which I looked up and it's like four or five days it can live. So if a woman's not a virgin in that time and she's had other men and other men's seed have been in her, do you see how they would question maybe the legitimacy of the fatherhood forever, for the rest of her life. Because when is that seed going to take root that's there? That's one of the reasons why virginity was so prized. I'm saying this because I think today, and even in the early church, it, it became, you know, um, this kind of, uh, especially with Neoplatonism, it becomes like, you know, anybody that has sex is somehow less than anybody that doesn't. And so, you know, the truly holy people are the monks who take a vow of celibacy and the nuns who take a vow of celibacy and they remain virgins their whole lives. And you can read about, you know, the celestial virgins and so forth that are talking about Christian women <clears throat> after Christ. And virginity becomes some kind of holier-than-thou position. And it's just a wrong understanding of an ancient um, practice, again, that biologically they had reasons for that. But also with Israel, it's the promise of the Messiah. Right, and, they, and it's got to be this pure seed, you know, and that's why the, the you know the virgin shall conceive, you know, Isaiah seven fourteen, and the critics will point out, well, it's not the word uh, for virgin in the Hebrew; it's the word for maiden, unmarried woman in the Hebrew, and it is, and the Greek translation translates it with the word parthenos, which is the Greek word for virgin, and so people say, well, you know. Um, <clears throat> Christians were led astray by the Greek translation because they didn't understand the Hebrew. And that's not true. As Martin Luther pointed out, that the olam is the Hebrew word. And the word, again, doesn't technically mean virgin in Hebrew, but it means unmarried woman. It never means a married woman. All right? So the unmarried woman shall conceive and give birth, if you want to say that, uh, and, and to the Messiah, Isaiah seven fourteen. 14. Um, but in that context and in that verse, this is, a, this is clearly a noble, honorable woman. But that can't be, you see, uh, unless she's a virgin. She can't be unmarried and conceive unless uh, she commits adultery or she commits fornication. But that's not the case in Isaiah 7.14. This is an honorable woman conceiving the Messiah legitimately, and yet somehow she's unmarried. Therefore, the Greek translators understood it and said, she's a virgin. The virgin shall conceive. And we were right to translate it that way in English. But again, I'm, what I'm saying all this to say as, you, as we get into this section, don't, you know, we don't want to get to the point where we idol it, you know, we, we make an idol of virginity or we look at it as somehow better than the married state. That's not the point. The Messiah hasn't come yet. Okay? And, uh, and so this idea of um, uh, the woman being uh, the virgin was very important. All right. Uh, so... Um, Get down to, uh, again, the protection here. So what happens is this man has said, my wife's not a virgin. And uh, what would have happened in that day was the wedding night when the, when the marriage is consummated. And, of 
course, there's bleeding on the part of the woman who was a virgin. They saved that cloth, and therefore, you know, that would be produced. And so there would be evidence to show, no, she was a virgin. Uh, and then this man, notice, this man loses the right of divorce. Verse 19, he cannot divorce her all her days. There was, a, there was grounds and a right to divorce in Israelite society. But if a man ever falsely accuses his wife, and, he, and that's shown to be the case, he can never divorce her. So um, this is a, a serious thing. This is a serious protection of women. Do you see that? Because this woman... Uh, would be scandalized by this. And if this man just looking for a reason to get rid of her, and he says, well, she wasn't a virgin, how would they know? Well, God provided that, you know, um, um, biologically with the hymen um, on the woman and then the, the, the record of that. So, uh, protection of married woman. Uh, and um, notice uh, in verse 22, if, they, if there's adultery, it's both are to be executed. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. Notice it's said this way, a man lying with a woman who is married. It doesn't say a woman lying with a man who is married. Now, it would be the same thing. But it's emphasized that way again because of the woman's needing to be pure and having that pure seed so that we can see the the line of the Messiah. So if a man goes into a married woman... Now he's corrupted her. And how can her husband know that any of the future children are his? And how can they know the line of the Messiah at that point? Uh, And so this is really important uh, for the purity of Israel and for them being able to trace this. And so you see that again in verse 22. Again, death to both. Think of John 8 when they only bring the woman caught in adultery and they don't bring the man. And so they clearly were not going by the law. Uh, They were supposed to bring both. Uh, verses 23 and 24, engagement is treated like marriage. If, you, if there's sexual sin in, in, in the period of engagement, you need a divorce, which is exactly what we see with Joseph and Mary, right, 1,500 years later. Joseph sees Mary's pregnant. He knows how that happens. He's going to put her away quietly, but put her away, a certificate of divorce. He needed that because that's how serious betrothal was. Uh, and once a woman is betrothed, she's protected. She's protected now uh, from any man. Um, any man that is found lying with a betrothed woman is put to death. Okay? Uh, and we see that coming up here too. Uh, verses 25 and 27. Uh, first of all, if it's, if it's willing, if it's willing uh, um, sin, you know, the woman's betrothed and, and she commits fornication with a, a man, they're both killed. But if it's rape, verses 25 to 27... The rapist is sentenced to death, and the woman is charged with no crime whatsoever. And the reason why I point that out, uh, again, is that in other societies, you know, a man's violated a woman. Well, the woman's shamed for that, even though she did no, nothing wrong. He overpowered her. In Israel, it's made clear um, that she is not to be, uh, in any way, uh, to be found fault uh, when a man, and that man is put to death. The rapist was put to death. All right? Um, and the victim's charged with no crime. Now, if it's willing fornication, so if it's two unmarried people and <clears throat> the woman's not engaged, so you don't have that idea of um, adultery and therefore capital punishment, uh, notice uh, what happens here. Verse 29, the man who lay with her, so this was willing, you know, a guy and a girl go off and they have sex. The man who lay with her shall have to give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. Notice he is the one who's found responsible. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all of his days. I think that would help premarital sex a little bit, right? If men knew <laughs> that woman that you're trying to seduce and sleep with, you sleep with her, she has to be your wife, and you can never divorce her. That calmed things down a little bit, I think, in our society. <clears throat> but notice again how the protection is on the woman. And he has to give the, basically the father the bride price that he would have had to pay. Um, and so you fool around and, and do this. And again, this is really amazing when you think about it. Uh, and notice how it's always the man doing it. The woman is always protected. Verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. And we know how uh, Levi did that um, um, with um, his father Jacob as uh, in the later books of um, Genesis that we haven't gotten into that yet, the chapters, I mean. Uh, and, and you will see that, you know, the people of God do 
sinful things. Why do we need all these sexual commandments? Because the people of God commit sexual sin, just like everybody else. All right, so then we get the protection of divorce. Uh, We looked at... um, We get the protection of divorce, uh, rather, in chapter 24, uh, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Remember, there were two schools of thought on here, uh, this, and this is what they bring to Jesus at one point. The school of Hillel, which the uncleanness is adultery. Or the school of Shimei, where the uncleanness is anything. You know, um, and we you know who's Jesus going to side with is what uh, the, the debate was about. Now, it's the, uh, by the way, it's the adultery of what we just saw, that he finds that his wife's not a virgin. All right, um, so there's, that's why it's a certificate of divorce. Uh, there's no charge of adultery. They don't know what happened per se, um, but um, you have divorce being here for, again, what we would say would be adulterous um, behavior, and Shimei would say for any reason, okay, for any reason. Um, but she, when she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, so this divorced woman can remarry if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her cannot take her back. That's interesting, too. Again, that's protecting uh, women because if a man thinks that he can divorce a woman, right, and then marry someone else, and then divorce her, then go back to this one, marry her, no, you can't do it. See, that would stop this kind of practice where men would begin to prey upon women and just marry, divorce, marry, divorce, marry, divorce, whoever you want, and the woman has no rights. You can never touch that woman again if you divorce her, uh, is what the scripture is saying. So again, uh, protection there. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 to 9, the law of leveret marriage. So this is interesting. This is found in many ancient peoples, by the way, because it was, the offspring was so important and, then, and one's name continuing was important. But especially so in Israel, again, because remember, the type of heavenly inheritance. I put this up at the heading, you know, in Roman numeral 3. A lot of these laws have to do with Israel is a type of kingdom of God on earth. Right, that's why you can't sell your land and you've got to marry in your tribe and all of that because God is showing uh, the p- picture of heaven where everything is perfect. And, and plus the Messiah hasn't come yet. So that colors a lot of things that we're looking here too. So they have the messianic promise, not yet, and they are, they're supposed to be a picture of heaven. And so you see things like <clears throat> what we're going to notice here in leveret marriage where um, uh, if... If you don't have children, your brother goes into your wife to raise up children to your name, though you're dead, so that your name lives on in the land. Because, again, it's a type of heaven. But that's what's going on here. Uh, verses 5 to 9. Notice if, it's, if brothers dwell together. So that's the first requirement. This isn't, you know, I have my house and my brother has his house and we have our own. This is where you have basically a large family with a couple of, you know, brothers dwelling together. uh, So you're already living as a family. All right. And one of them dies and has no son. The widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother, who's still alive, shall go into her, shall consummate marriage with her, take her as a wife. And perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother. That his notice that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. Because he has a heavenly inheritance that lasts forever. And this is a picture of that. And so you want to perpetuate that name as long as this whole system is in place. Uh, and so that's uh, what we're talking about here. Even though, again, you can find this practice in other peoples. There's Hittite records, Chaldean records, where, again, a, a brother is supposed to take a woman who, who, who is a widow to his brother. But Israel qualifies it. They have to be living together in the same house. And they have to be already like a family. The son here, by the way, in verse 5, uh, is a son or daughter. Uh, the, the rabbis translate it that way. 
the Septuagint, the Vulgate. Notice, in other words, if a brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son or daughter. Son just means child in this context. And that's the way you would say child because it was masculine. Um, so if he has no child, how do we know that? Because there's a passage already um, in Numbers where um, if the, 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 the daughters of Zeliophad, remember that story? Where their father has no sons. And what's going to happen to his inheritance? And there's actually a law given from that case in Numbers 27, 8. And you shall speak to the people of Israel... God says to Moses, saying, if a man dies and has no son, you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. That's Numbers 27. So this is if you die childless in verse 5. If the, if the man dies childless, then the brother. Uh, if, and again, if there are two brothers living together. So there's a, there's a closeness already there. The reason is that his name it won't be blotted out, and it's this typical heavenly inheritance. Uh, it's not about human pride. By the, by the way, the same thing's true for, if you look at the beginning of, of um, chapter 23, he who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. That's not like punishing somebody who's had an accident, but, it, but it's a typical thing. It's a typological uh, thing where Israel is supposed to be perfect. And so like the, the priests were actually barred from being priests if they had some kind of birth defect. Because, again, they have to, the priest has to be perfect, like the animal has to be perfect. And so in the typology that Israel was, that, that was real. Um, and yet even in, the, in Israel, if you remember passages from Deuteronomy, where Deuteron- Deuteron- um, Isaiah, sorry, passages from Isaiah, where Isaiah promises the one who has, you know, because Babylon was neutering uh, people, that's what pagans did. And it says that the, um, the, the man who's been emasculated will have more children, God says, uh, than the married man. Uh, and I will, I will be an inheritance to you better than sons. So that, you know, the spiritual inheritance is actually still promised even in the time of the type, but the type was important. Um, and so uh, that's part of what we're seeing here in this levit, um, leveret marriage. And this really goes to, you know, those guys who want to bring in just wholesale, you know, the redo Israel sort of in the church age. It's, there's a lot of problems with that. You want to start bringing in leveret marriage and if somebody has a birth defect, and you know, you've got to understand typology. Um, by the way, uh, in verses 7 to 10, through 10, so we have this leveret marriage of back in 25, and he's supposed to do this, but he did have a right of refusal. This was not a commanded law. It was a very, very recommended law. But he has the right of refusal, but refusal is going to cost him a little bit of a price here. So God is really strongly encouraging that Israel does this, but if the man didn't want to do it, he didn't have to. Notice, if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He, he, does, he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, very um, humiliating thing in that culture, spit in his face, very humiliating thing pretty much in any culture, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house and his name shall be called in Israel. The house of him who had his sandal removed. So it's not forcing him to do it. But if he doesn't do it, it's just pretty serious. God is strongly encouraging that you ought to do this. Now, what would be the reason for his refusal? Well, remember the book of Ruth. You know, when Boaz goes and Ruth is the Moabitess and she comes and they're looking for the next of kin. And Boaz says, there's one closer to me. By taking Ruth, you've got to take the field. By taking the field, you've got to pay for it. You've got to pay the taxes on it and everything else. And remember, the Redeemer says, I can't do it. I don't want that burden of this extra cost that it's going to cost me. And Boaz then is able to do it when the other guy drops out. And remember, he actually removes his foot. I mean, he removes his shoe. Remember that in the story? He takes off his shoe and he hands it to him. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't think this is in that sense. I think because, yeah, so Ruth comes as, as a daughter of Naomi, 
and Naomi is back. So it's really Naomi who is the uh, one. And um, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Um, and so I think I, I think a, what 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 probably comes out of this is that a woman who is childless can press for this, even if they weren't living together. Um, and so I think Naomi comes back into the land and says, "Look, you know, I'm without inheritance. My daughters are without inheritance. We need someone to redeem us." So it was. It's still a protection of women, though, when you see it that way, that she could invoke that, and now the the men have to deal with it. I mean, they have to have that counsel, and you know, Boaz has to step in, and, and he says, I'll, I'll, "I'll, you know, I'll take care of this. I'll make it happen." But there's someone closer. So um, the kinsman redeemer. Um, but that's my speculation, uh, because you're, you're right that we don't see them living together. And but but that is a qualification if brothers dwell together. All right. Uh, and the, the commentaries uh, bring that out. Um, but again, if a woman doesn't have that, she can, she can push for that. Could it just be the difference is one is expected and the other is permitted? Like mm. OS and his other relative were permitted to do this. Probably. Yeah, you don't see her spitting in his face, right? You know, and that kind of stuff. The land, you know, he just takes off his sandal. And he's disavowing responsibility. I think that's probably what we're seeing there. And I just don't have the, the knowledge to say definitely. But it certainly seems to be the case that there isn't this shame at all, you know, and when that's... Denny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's right. That's right. It was the other way around. I'm glad. I, I yeah, I didn't go there. It wasn't Ruth and the, then the property. It was the property and therefore Ruth. Okay. Uh, I think we're straight now. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to um, all right. Uh, verses 11 and 12. Um, the issue of. Uh, the same now, so this is one of those tough passages, all right? If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall not pity. Um, there's nothing else like this in the Old Testament. And, uh, of course, there are all kind of laws like this in other cultures. And, in fact, you know, Islam infamously has the penalty of stealing um, the cutting off of the hand and Sharia law, which is absolutely incredibly unjust because the person who steals now can't work and probably is going to have to steal again. Um, but what's going on here? Well, what was the first issue about? The first issue was childlessness, right? Childlessness on the part of the woman because her husband has died and she has no son nor daughter. And so, you know, who's going to provide for her? Who's going to carry on the name of her husband's family that she is married into. And so that's what the first 10 verses were about. Now we get child, really the potential of childlessness on the part of a man. Because that woman seizes the testicles of a man. Uh, she knows what she's doing. Uh, and again, the promise of the Messiah, you could eliminate that. A woman could, you know, theoretically destroy the promise of the Messiah by destroying a man's ability to reproduce. Um, notice it doesn't say it, it again. So two men are fighting, uh, and the, the woman's trying to get involved here. Now the only penalty that's denoted is if she actually goes for his private parts and tries to harm him in that way. She hits him with a two by four. There's nothing said about that. I mean, you know, I mean, think about this. You know, before you start thinking about, wow, this is horrible and cruel. This is a very, very precise, specific thing that that woman is doing at that moment. First of all, the two men need, should just fight it out. And then, you know, the authorities can be brought in and resolve it. But for her to go in and actually go after the most, you know, sensitive and, and part that he has. And again, the promise of the Messiah being to whoever in Israel. Um, that, that promise, and then again, perpetuating the name, being able to perpetuate your name, which is a type of heavenly inheritance, you know, both of those things are at risk by this woman doing this thing. And again, so this is really a, a, a blow at, at Israel itself. 
as a type of kingdom of God. This woman's going to do that to that man. Well, you know, pick up a two by four and whack him on the head. Maybe you get a stripe or something, you know, but this is very specific. And again, childlessness was very much something that Israel should not want because this is your place in the kingdom of God. And it continues in your children because God is the God of the nation forever. So the nation, as long as it goes on, it's showing that. All right. And so um, I don't know if anybody has any questions or or comments on that. But I I think that's the way to understand these two verses. Never is there any other crime in Israel where something is cut off. The hand is cut off. You know, there are stripes given, the, the, the 40 minus 1, so that you don't dishonor. Uh, uh, there's fines. You can be sold into slavery. Um, you can have to restore fourfold, something that you stole, things like that. There's a lot of things, a lot of different penalties. Uh, and capital punishment uh, was usually stoning. Um, but never is there anything else, like, you know, you cut off the hand or foot. Yes, yes. Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, uh, if you did do that. I, I think that, that statement is, is broad, too. You know, it's you take something, you get it done to you. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, the justice principle, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, you harm someone's eye, your eye is going to be harmed. Um, uh, now, with a slave, there was a, you set the slave free for the harm of a tooth. Um, or something like that. But, all right, but you guys are catching me on a couple things here. <clears throat> but again, you can see the justice of that. You know, you, you take somebody's, you know, uh, eye out. Uh, it's not something like this where it just almost seems random until you start thinking about what Israel is and what this represents and how deliberate this act would have to be on the part of the woman. Um, all right. Clean, uh, so uh, the, the rest of the chapter, 9, nine through um, 14, is about the military camp. Um, and I'm going back to chapter 23 now. Unless I messed this up. Yeah, so the, when the army goes out, uh, you know, just regulations about um, if a man is unclean by a semen emission or when you go out and you, you have to uh, dig a hole for your excrement. Uh, just, again, keeping the camp clean, you know, um, Part of uh, that they're being holy, God says, that they're supposed to do this and not look like, um, um, in, in a sense, animals, but they're supposed to live in an orderly sense. By the way, the um, uncleanness becomes, um, in Christian tradition, the sin of masturbation, semen emission, because of passages like this. Uh, he's rendered unclean because of a semen emission. Sometimes, uh, this has come up recently. In fact, one of the programs I was on it, Cornerstone asked the pastor, is masturbation a sin? Where does it appear in the Bible? You know, and we looked at some of those passages, and you see words like uncleanness and lewdness and lasciviousness, uh, and that would be in, uh, clearly including things like masturbation. Uh, so, yes, fornication, sex um, before marriage, adultery, sex uh, you know, outside of marriage, homosexuality, unnatural sex, um, but also uh, masturbation, uncleanness, lewdness, lasciviousness uh, included. And so that, that this, this man is rendered unclean. Uh, whether or not this was deliberate, whether or not this is, you know, uh, just an, uh, in, in his sleep, it's still something that he's got to go outside the camp and, and clean himself for. So, again, this is, anti- this is looking at a military camp. It's only men. Uh, men might live a little bit dirtier, so God's making specific rules, you know, to keep, to keep the camp clean. Uh, and again, to remember who they are. So um, that's all I have for the difficult passages. Any thoughts, questions on some of those? Anything I left out? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there it is pointed out, we are to uphold God's judgment, yeah. even in our feelings. Yeah, I, and I, I'm glad you brought that up, Grace. I had that in my notes. You know, it, God's, because what's the tendency? Oh, you know what? Let's just show pity. Look how she's crying. You know, I mean, he, he's already got children or whatever. Uh, and God says, no, you know, this is, this is a part of who I am. 
and who you are. You will not pity her. You will enforce my law. Uh, and that's really important in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so the, the last section that I was going to do, we just got a couple minutes to do real quick here. Um, and, and that's the gospel anticipation. Very clearly in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses talks about the prophet like me. Uh, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is in the context of, of listening to false prophets. According to all that you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord. Because Remember, they wanted the mediator. So Moses is saying, someday, one like me is going to come, and you will listen to him, and God's word will be in him. I notice again, he says, I will raise up a prophet like you among their brethren and put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him, and whoever will not hear him, I will require it. So this prophet that's like Moses, you either listen to him or you're no longer uh, part of the people of God. And, of course, the New Testament twice says this is Jesus. Acts 3.22, Moses says, The Lord will raise up a prophet for you, uh, like me among your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And um, uh, in that sermon, Peter says, It's Jesus. It's Jesus who is the prophet like Moses. And then Stephen in Acts 7.37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Remember, Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. Remember that? Uh, He said, you know, if you believed Moses, you'd also believe me. Moses wrote. Well, this is where Moses wrote of Jesus. And also in the prophetic uh, declaration in chapter 30, uh, which we uh, looked at um, just very briefly already once, but I want you to notice in chapter 30, verse 6, circumcision of the heart. Um, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart that you will live. Remember, Paul talks about that they were not circ- if you're not circumcised in heart, it doesn't matter. Uh, but by the same token, Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, in a commanded form, circumcise your heart. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart, be stiff enough no longer, and then in 30, verse 6, the Lord will. So there's the command and then the promise of grace. And aren't, aren't we the same thing? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the command and then the promise of grace. You know, you can't see the kingdom unless you're born again. And so we see the same kind of thing. Um, so God commanding uh, what he does. Uh, and we see this over and over again in the, in the Old Testament. Circumcision of the heart appears. And I give you the verses there. Jeremiah 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your hearts. Um, God complaining that the nations are uncircumcised in Jeremiah 9 and the house of Israel is uncircumcised in heart. But then the promise in Jeremiah 32. Then I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me. Uh, and that God will take away their heart of stone. Ezekiel will give them a heart of flesh. Uh, and so God will put his spirit in them. This is the circumcision of the heart that's both commanded and promised in Deuteronomy. Just as the same thing uh, in the gospel. So there's more gospel uh, uh, allusions in Deuteronomy. But I think those are the most clear ones that we see. So anyway, next week... Uh, Bob, Elder Bob Eloise is going to take over. I'm going to be on vacation and I won't be here. Uh, and he's going to do uh, a class where he's going to answer anything that you want to know. So that'll be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so close in prayer. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that we can study your word. And we thank you that we can worship you. Help us, Lord, to prepare our hearts. You, you command us to do so, but we look to you, Father, for the grace to prepare our hearts to worship you. Let us do so in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.